0: So the name of the series that I have been in over the last four and a half months is called Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. The one thing that I love about grace is that it has no expiration date on it. How many of you know we throw a lot of things away, don't we? Memberships expire, food expires, parking meters expire, we throw a lot of things away. But grace has no expiration date on it. The truths and graces that are found in the series that I have been ministering through will be just as relevant, just as meaningful, just as powerful, and just as liberating 100 years from now as they are today. The one thing I've discovered over the years is that truth never changes. Now, facts change. It can be a fact, but then in light of new evidence, it's no longer a fact. Here's the new fact, and facts keep changing. But truth never changes. And that's why Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am the way, the facts, and the life. No, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So today it is my privilege to add the 10th and final message to this series. As I minister for a little while through a message, I'm calling Daddy's Hands. One of the reasons that this series has meant so much to me is because these messages have served as a medic for the soul, lifting believers from the ocean floor of shipwrecked faith and hope. How many of you have been there at one time or not in your life? Come on. And we know that it doesn't take much. We have friends that you speak a simple little word in their lives, and they're just encouraged. They can be just so down and out one moment, but then you come along and you speak words of grace into their heart. They just turn like a door on a hinge. They just change. And so the word is very, very powerful, and it has a way of lifting believers, unbelievers as well, but lifting them from the carnage that they have been experiencing for, in many cases, many years. And that's why it's dear to my heart, because I don't like to see people suffer emotionally, physically as well, but emotionally in particular. The truths and graces from these messages have been like first responders on the scene to apply first aid to not wounded bodies per se, but wounded minds and wounded emotions. I'm talking about truths and graces that have treated disaster victims that were injured by the hurricane force winds of mixture doctrine. Now, in case you're not familiar with mixture doctrine, that is taking Jesus's finished work and it's mixing in all your performances. It's mixing in anything that's not in the word, not in the new covenant, should I say, is a better way to say it. And so these messages have aided in the restoration efforts to revive hope. Hope to not those that have lost their salvation. That's impossible. Salvation is a finished work but hope to them that have lost their purpose. How many of you know that you can course your way through life and one moment be just so full of purpose, so full of ideas, so full of hope, and all of a sudden something crushes all of that and it's just gone. And it seems like it takes forever to revive that hope. That's the kind of hope I'm talking about. I'm talking about hope to them that have lost their way. Again, not their salvation, but they just seem to have lost their way. They seem to have lost their spiritual footing. They seem to have lost their spiritual equilibrium, if you will. And also hope to those that have experienced something called spatial disorientation. Now that's a word, those are words that we're probably not so familiar with. Fred, you'll know those words when you see them. Anybody that's in aviation will recognize those words. In case you're wondering what spatial disorientation is, it's a condition that pilots can find themselves in when the pilot's senses don't agree with the flight attitude of the aircraft. The pilot's eyes and his senses, all of his senses, are telling him one thing, but the flight instruments of the aircraft are communicating a totally different message. Did you know that when an aircraft is in a sustained bank, after about 30 seconds, the brain no longer has any sense of turning? Now, does this help us to understand why different religions, different denominations find themselves erring from the truth? It's because they have been in a sustained bank so long, they have lost the awareness that they're actually moving further away from the liberties that will set them free. Now, they won't do this intentionally. Nobody gets up in the morning to have a bad day. I can't think of anybody like that. Nobody gets up in the morning to experience any form of trauma, whether emotional or physical. But this is so gradual that when we've been in a certain way for so long, like a bank of an airplane when you're banking. I find that phenomenal that when you have been in a sustained bank, and it's one of the things they'll teach you in aviation flight school, this phenomenon happens. I've heard believers say things over the years like, I don't feel God's presence anymore. And they'll say things like, perhaps I've walked away from him. Perhaps I've let go of daddy's hands. Friends, may I remind us once again, I've said it many times over the years, that we are technically not really holding on to Daddy's hand. Daddy's hand is holding on to us. I know that for a fact every time I would walk my little kids somewhere, that their hand just felt like jello in yours, you know. You had to squeeze it kind of tight, right? Because you wanted to hold them up. But they weren't squeezing your hand. They were allowing you to hold theirs. He's holding our hands. Nevertheless, so many people operate by feelings. Come on, they operate by feelings and emotions rather than by the flight instruments of the new covenant. We are living in a world that is systemic with crime and corruption. People are lost in spatial disorientation. They don't know up from down, left from right, or they don't even know right from wrong. We are in this condition because so many have never been introduced to daddy's heart. Now, some people get offended by the fact that I call God daddy. That's what I call him. He's my daddy. He's my papa. He's my father. Do I refer to him as God? Of course I do. But I see him so much more up close, so much more personal, so much more active in my life, so much within reach. He is my daddy. When we were very young, we were staying with some friends, and then my daddy couldn't find work. And he decided to take a trip to a city that was many, many miles away from us. And we lived in the mountains of Virginia at the time. And I decided to stay back with the two guys that we were staying with. They were close friends of mine. And I just thought my daddy was going to be gone for the weekend maybe and then come back. But day after day went by, there was no telephones in our place back then, day after day went by and I would stand at the window and I would look for my daddy, where's my daddy? I wanted my daddy's hands to grab me and throw me up in the air and my daddy's hands to hold me. And then a week went by and a couple of weeks went by and three weeks went by and I thought, what happened to my daddy? And then what I found out when my daddy did finally show back up is that he found a job and he went right to work. And how many of you know you got to work a couple of weeks before you get a paycheck and then you got to put things in order? But my daddy did finally come back and get me. And as I was thinking about this message here, that story, that thought came back to my mind that there's so many people that they're searching. They're searching for things that will not take the place of the father. And so they're wanting to put their hands around so many things in life But nothing satisfies like daddy's hands. Nothing satisfies like daddy's touch. So we are in this condition because, again, so many people have never been introduced to daddy's heart. And they've never felt the gentle touch, the sweet touch of daddy's hands. If there were ever a time when the body of Christ must come into the revelation of her true identity, It's right now. It's not in our future, friends. Don't prophesy it. It's now. It's right now that the body of Christ needs to awaken, needs to come into the revelation, needs to rise every morning with the revelation of her true identity that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. Sons and daughters. It doesn't get any closer. It doesn't get any sweeter. It doesn't get any better. If I look across the landscape of the nation, The one thing that keeps me from losing hope is because I know, I absolutely emphatically know that there is something beyond my feelings and emotions. I'm trusting in the navigation system of the sweet Holy Spirit. I'm trusting in the navigation system of the blood of Christ. And I'm trusting in the navigation system of his word, his word. Don't discount his word. I don't think you will find a truer friend as you walk this life than the word of God. Jesus said that he was a friend that would stick closer than a brother. The scriptures are filled with his word. And that word becomes a friend to us. Not just when we need it, but to prevent us from needing it many times. Did you know that in dense fog or in a very thick cloud covering that it's possible for a plane to fly upside down and the pilot not even know it. Did you know that? See, I got a pilot shaking his head here. Because of spatial disorientation, the pilot cannot tell up from down or turns from level flight. How many of you know that it's essential that pilots learn, listen, to trust their navigation system, learn to trust their instruments, right? When I was a very little boy, the gentleman that pastored our church, our pastor, his name was Larry Bell. And he owned his own plane. And he held contests for the little boys and girls. And if we brought enough kids to church, he would take us up in his airplane and fly us around. And it was a very frightening thing for a little boy, but it was fun at the same time. It was exhilarating, to be honest with you. And then after several years, our pastor moved away and he moved to Oklahoma. And there he spent the rest of his years. But about 12, 15 years ago, something like that, he happened to come back into the area to visit his sister. And I was very good friends with his sister, and she let me know that her brother would be coming. I said, I've got to see my former pastor. And as we sat and we talked about a million things, and I reminded him of the time that he had taken us up in his airplane, he, of course, remembered that. And then we got talking about airplanes for quite a while. And he told me the story that when he was very young, He and another pilot were flying somewhere one night. He got very tired and he drifted off for just a couple of minutes. It was one of those nights where it was snowing. The weather began to get rough. And he said he drifted off for just a moment. And he said when he woke up, he looked out the windshield. and He said the snowflakes looked like the size of 50 cent pieces. They were coming down so big. And he said when he got his bearing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, We're upside down! We're going to crash. And the pilot said, no, we're not. He said, yes, we are. Friends, that's spatial disorientation. You see, it was real to him. What am I trying to say? I'm saying that spatial disorientation is when pilots find themselves in situations where they are unable to accurately determine their position. Does this sound a little bit familiar? It should, because it's the same thing that happens to believers. There are times when we feel like we're anything but saved. Come on. You don't feel saved. Times when we question our holiness. Times when we question if our righteousness really does surpass that of the Pharisees. Friends, it is in these times that we must remind ourselves that our navigational instruments are the sweet Holy Spirit and all the promises of God. Two of his promises can be found. The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, one of my favorite scriptures. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is our position, regardless of what our five senses are telling us. The next one is John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, even unto them that believe on his name. That is our position, regardless of what your feelings are telling you. Regardless of what your emotions are telling you. We are sons of God. That word power right there is the word excusia in the Greek. It literally means the ability. It means the privilege is what it means. It's not dunamis, which is another form of power, like the disciples received in the upper room. This one here means he's given us the ability. He's given us the ability to respond to his invitation. He's given us the privilege to come into his family. But as many as received him, that's Christ, To them gave he the ability, the privilege to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. (laughs) Friends, being unable to accurately determine one's position in Christ is precisely where a great percentage, a very large portion of the body of Christ lives on a daily basis. They have lived in a dense fog of guilt. They have lived in a thick cloud of shame so long that they have become spatially disoriented. Now, I want to ask you a question. Was it like that when you first came to Christ? Was it like that when they first came to Christ? No, it wasn't. It was, oh, happy day, wasn't it? It was hip, hip, hurrah. Your new creation life began with this renewed energy this renewed sense of purpose. This is how my life began in Christ. I had renewed energy, vibrant, alive. I could tell something just changed on the inside of me. They were full of enthusiasm. They were full of peace. They were full of joy. They were full of assurance. But then, because of doctrinal spatial disorientation, they were loaded down with the G-forces of good behavior in an effort to maintain their acceptance before the Father. Have you been there before? Yeah. You know, over time, they became emotionally and physically and mentally exhausted. They couldn't tell up from down or left from right. Because of mixture doctrine, they found themselves in a concentration camp of condemnation. <laughs> Where's daddy? Where's my daddy? When I don't have enough stamina, when I don't have enough emotional or physical strength to carry on, they cry. It's the same thing I cried from the mountains of Virginia. Where's daddy? Because the fact that I've been separated from my daddy for so long felt like my daddy wasn't coming home. And every day I would look out the window and I would say, where's Daddy? Where's my Papa? Friends, Daddy's hands are in the same place as they were when we first came to Christ. He hasn't hidden them from us. You see, like gravitational forces, technically they don't change your weight, but they sure do feel like it. That's what gravitation does, is it makes things heavier. Princess Diana died because of a rupture in her pulmonary vein. What caused this? The G-forces of deceleration. In other words, the abrupt stop going from 85 miles an hour to nothing instantly. How many of you know your body, everything inside of your body keeps moving? Just because the car has stopped doesn't mean your organs and everything aren't continuing to move at 85 miles an hour. Her chest would have been experiencing 70 G's. Her head would have been experiencing 100 G's. So whether it's the G-forces of acceleration or the G-forces of deceleration or the G-forces of all the banks and turns we take in life, we are not built for such pressure. We are not built for constant pressure. That's why Jesus would speak these words into his followers' ears. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. I love these. You hear us talk about these a lot. From the message paraphrase, Jesus said, are you tired? Come on, now you answer that question in your heart this morning. Are you tired? Are you worn out? (laughs) Yeah. Are you burned out on religion? (laughs) Yeah, I get that way too. What does he say? He says, come to me. Isn't that interesting? All the things he could have said there. I'm going to give you seven steps to get you out of that tired stuff. I'm going to put you on a special diet. No, he said, come to me. That is your special diet. He said, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Oh, yes, come on. He said, Walk with me. In other words, he was saying, Grab a hold of my daddy's hand. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. And then he says, Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. You see, that's what grace does, it eliminates the G forces that have led us into guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. Jesus said, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. You won't feel like you weigh 15 times the way you weigh with all the G-forces of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation pressing against you. He said, keep company with me and you will learn to live freely. Come on, you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the way I like it. I like to get up in the morning with a sense of I'm free. I like to get up in the morning with a sense of nothing's burdened me down. We carry burdens that we don't have to carry. And Jesus said, I've got a diet for you. It's called come to me. Walk with me. Just work with me. Don't fight against me. Don't allow your religious spirit to fight against truth walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Friends, when believers learn the unforced rhythms of grace, you know what happens? They recover their lives. That's what takes place. Their energy, their enthusiasm, their peace, their joy, their assurance, their faith, and their hope are revived. You know what they do? They say, So long, uh, goodbye, uh, good riddance to the concentration camp of condemnation. Now, listen, I'm not going to brag, but stepped up on my Jesus. I can't even begin to tell you the last time I walked in condemnation. Why? Because this gospel of grace has taken root in my heart, in my life. Don't let that put you under condemnation. I'm just telling you what's for me is for you. They learn how to take a real rest, a meaningful rest. You say, Pastor Mark, how do I find this kind of rest? Can you answer me that one question? How would I find this kind of rest? It must be complicated. It's got to be a Rubik's Cube thing. I mean, it's just complicated. Because I've been searching most of my Christian life, and I still haven't found that kind of rest. No, friends, it's not complicated. In fact, it's so easy, it's so simple. I think what we've done is we just banked around it. That's all. Listen to me carefully now. You find this rest by not mixing anything with grace, the undiluted gospel. The moment one mixes anything with grace in an effort to be more pleasing to the Father, more acceptable to the Father, he or she... Has added the G forces that they were not built to withstand. Calvinism is mixture. I'm not here to throw them under the bus. I thank God that they preach Jesus. I thank God that people come to Christ and their lives are transformed and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But Calvinism is mixture. It teaches that God has predestined those he wants to be saved, but that he doesn't offer salvation to everyone. Only a select group. Calvinism teaches that once a person has a relationship with God, they cannot lose their salvation. Good for them. Awesome. Calvinism will fill your backpack with good works, and the performing of these good works will be the evidence that you have been picked by God. But if you let go of these good works, then they'll say, well, then you probably were never really saved in the first place. They will tell you that nobody really knows for sure until you cross over, until you get to the other side. I have a question for you. Which part of this doctrine is true and which part of this doctrine is spatial disorientation? Well, it's true that a believer cannot lose their salvation, but the doctrine that God chooses some to be saved and that others are not given a choice is nothing more than spatial disorientation. The teachings that one doesn't know for sure if they're saved until they cross over is absolute foolishness. Doctrines put together by well-meaning men, not by daddy's hands. In Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, we find these words. And the spirit, come on, the spirit, as my African friends would say, the spirit you received, does not make you slaves so that you live again in fear rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry abba father it means papa father the spirit himself look at these words the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are god's children So to try to convince me that I will never know until I cross over is just foolishness. I'm going to love you. I'm going to put my arms around you. I'm going to try to talk you out of your nonsense, but I'm telling you, you're too late. The Spirit has already bore witness with my spirit that I'm a son of God. It's too late. I can know this side of heaven. So that's what Calvinism, in a nutshell, teaches. Arminianism is also mixture. And you can never be free from fear. You never really can. Arminianism teaches that God extends salvation to all humanity, unlike Calvinism does. So Arminianism is different in that regard. They say God extends salvation to all humanity. But Arminianism teaches that a believer can forfeit or lose their salvation. So again, I have a question for you. Which part of this doctrine is truth? And which part of this doctrine is spatial disorientation? Well, it's true that Jesus died for the whole world, didn't he? And that God desires that all men be saved. We find that in the scriptures. Therefore, salvation is offered to all. I mean, you have to really do some gymnastics to come up with some sort of conclusion that God doesn't offer salvation to all. What do you do with John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then what do you do with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15? And that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth no longer live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What were the key words there? And that he died for all, friends. He died for all. The doctrine that believers can forfeit or lose their salvation is nothing more. It is mixture. It is spatial disorientation. Doctrines put together by well-meaning men, but not by daddy's hands. At Triumphant Grace Ministries, the cornerstone of our foundation is laid upon the finished work of Christ. We are what is known as free grace. Salvation is given to every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord and salvation cannot be forfeited or lost. Our salvation is grace through faith in Jesus' death, burial and resurrection. If you remove the death of Christ, there is no salvation. If you remove the burial of Christ, there is no salvation. If you remove the resurrection of Christ, we are most miserable and there is no salvation in Christ. There is no spatial disorientation, only grace, the undiluted gospel. Amen? How many of you would agree with me that a clock without hands is of little to no use? Come on. <laughs> now, if that clock had sentimental value to you, then you would take that clock to a clockmaker and he would restore the missing hands. Now, I don't know about the inner workings of a clock. I've taken a few of them apart, and I've realized right away I'm in way over my head when I see all the cogwheels and the rivets and the pendulums and the springs and everything that's inside of a clock. So I don't know a lot about how they work, but the one thing that I do know is that all of the components behind the face of the clock are not affected by the missing hands. It doesn't know! If the hands are out there or not, not affected by the missing hands. What's my point? We add G-forces to our lives when we believe that our sole purpose for being saved is so that we can work for God. That's not true, friends. But yet so many people have bought into that because it's taught within the churches that your purpose is to work for God, to serve God. That's not true. I didn't have children so that my children could work for me. Did you? I didn't marry Valerie so that she could be my cook and my maid. That wouldn't have went over very well either. (laughs) I don't pastor this church and drive 90 minutes to get here because I feel like I have to. Love is the motivating force. And it's because I want the world to be able to see Daddy's heart. I want the world to be able to feel Daddy's hands. That's why we come here, and that's why we do what we do. It's not because we have to. We were not saved to be just workers and slaves for God. He has angels to work for him if he needs workers, friends, and there's countless number of them. Jesus said, I could have called 12 legions of angels, and they would have come and served me and worked for me. So you understand where I'm coming from. So in Colossians chapter 4, In verse 6, we find these words. Let your conversation be always full of grace. I love that. Your conversation at the restaurant, your conversation in the church foyer, your conversation at work, your conversation in the laundromat, wherever you go. The scriptures say, let your conversation be always full of grace. Why? Because there are people within reach have lost their hands they've lost touch friends let your conversation be always full of grace i love this seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone when i eat my lunch in the lunchroom at work i can't tell you how many people i'm the only one they do it to as well i can't tell you how many people come over to see what i'm eating what what are you eating? The HR lady does it all the time. Oh, that smells so good. What did Valerie make for you? Just chicken and broccoli. Why does it smell so good? Seasoning. She knows how to season food. And that's what this scripture is getting at right here. And the saying, let your conversation always be full of grace. Grace is a seasoning, friends, it's a tenderizer. How many of you tenderize meat, right? You put a tenderizer on it, right? Or beat it with something, right? To tenderize it, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So my question is, when I look at that scripture, how does one's conversation become full of grace? How does one's conversation become seasoned with salt? Friends, How many of you know you can only give out what you've taken in? You can only give out what you take in. I guarantee if you cut my wrist here, blood's going to come out. Why? Because there's blood on the inside of me. Does that make sense? We can only give out what we take in. If we take in grace, the undiluted gospel. In other words, we didn't add anything to Jesus' finished work. Then guess what pours like salt? When we have conversations, that's right, grace, the undiluted gospel pours forth. If you were to remove the hands from the face of a clock, the missing hands would in no way alter the intricate workings of the clock. However, the clock would lose its ability to communicate. It communicates through its hands. Do you understand how that works? It's communicating through its hands. I keep looking at that clock back there on the wall. It's communicating to me that I better move along. You see how that's doing that right now? Yeah, it's doing that right now. Communicating. But it communicates through its hands. And so it is with grace, the undiluted gospel. Without our hands and voices, we lose the ability to communicate the intricate workings of daddy's heart and daddy's hands to them that are living in the dense fog of guilt and the thick cloud of shame. We miss the opportunities to rescue people from the concentration camp of condemnation and the unbelievers from the sentence of sin. I'm talking about the ones that are dealing with spatial disorientation. And why are they dealing with spatial disorientation? Because they have trusted in their own senses rather than in the navigational voice of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the greatest gift we've ever been given is Jesus, and he gives us eternal life. I love the thought that we can never perish, and we can never be abducted from daddy's hands. We can never be shoplifted. We can never be misplaced. Daddy watches his children. The scriptures say he never sleeps nor slumbers. He doesn't go to bed and wake up in the morning and go, what happened to my kids? When I went to bed, you were fine. We can never perish. We can never be abducted from daddy's hands. Why? Because our Father is greater than all. Jesus is one with the Father We are one with Jesus, therefore, we and the Father are one. In John chapter 10, verses 25 through 30, we find these words from Jesus. Jesus answered, in other words, he's having this dialogue with people. And Jesus answered, and he said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. So you know there was an exchange going on, don't you? And Jesus had to finally say, look, I already told you, but you didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Because they were trusting in their own programming. They were trusting in their own senses while their feelings and emotions were pulling the G-forces of old-time religion, caught in the grip of spatial disorientation. They were unwilling and unable to accurately determine their position. Jesus said, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and then they follow me. Jesus said these words. He said, I give them eternal life. Come on, how long is eternal, friends? (laughs) Forever, right? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Maybe we need to write that above our door frame at home. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, does Jesus always tell the truth? All right. So when he said, I give them eternal life, why do some doctrines tell you you can lose your salvation? That's not eternal salvation. That's conditional salvation. That's temporary salvation. Jesus never says, I give you conditional salvation. I never give you temporary life. I give you eternal salvation life, he says, and they shall never perish. And then he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my daddy's hands. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. He said, I and the father are one. Come on, folks, how do we walk around that truth so simple all of our lives? Come on, this is so easy. That's because we got in a bank and we didn't realize that we were erring. We were moving away from truth. Let me ask you a question. What did Jesus mean? What was he talking about when he said, My Father who has entrusted the sheep into My care is greater than all. What's Jesus talking about? All what? (laughs) Well, again, the word all comes from the Greek word pas, P-A-S. Pas translates as whatsoever and whosoever. Now, friends, I'm not making this stuff up. Go look it up yourself. The word pas in the Greek, that word all, means whatsoever and whosoever. Therefore, when Jesus said that his daddy's hands were greater than all, he was referring to all the whatsoevers and all the whosoevers. Now, for your information, the whatsoevers covers everything, and the whosoever's covers everyone, doesn't it? <laughs> Friends, we are secure in daddy's hands. Thanks to Jesus, who gave us grace, the undiluted gospel. One of the main purposes of this series has been to release the body of Christ from her spiritual, obsessive, compulsive disorder. I'm talking about a disorder that bombards believers' minds with intrusive thoughts, thoughts of contamination and anxiety. Come on, have you ever been there? You feel contaminated. You feel dirty. You feel distant, whatever it may be. And these are the intrusive thoughts that bombard our minds, thoughts that generate obsessions with shake and bake perfection. How many of you have heard me talk about shake and bake? You know, it's shake and bake and I helped. That kind of perfection. We've got this shake and bake perfection mentality. I'm talking about the disorder that generates compulsions that include Excessive prevention of sin through behavior modification. Friends, that's not where God has called us to live. He's not interested in you just modifying your behavior. He's interested in your heart. He's a heart surgeon. I'm talking about the added pressure to perform for acceptance and reassurance. We've got this thing that we constantly need reassurance. Are you sure? Tell me again. Friends, this mentality is an abrupt deceleration and it ruptures the arteries and veins in our hearts. Let me ask you a question. When we're thinking about the perfection that I'm talking about, have we not seen the next verse, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, my favorite verse in the whole wide world? For by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those that are being sanctified. Look at those words. For by one sacrifice, who was sacrificed? It was Jesus, wasn't it? How many times was Jesus' sacrificed? One. Tells you right there, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. Was he less than perfect? No, he was perfect. So he didn't make himself perfect. He made you perfect. He made me perfect. And how did he do that? Through his blood and through his sanctification. And how are believers sanctified? How is it that we become sanctified? Some churches will teach you it's a progressive thing. That it's kind of like going through school. You go from first grade to second grade. And in third grade, you learn things that you didn't know in second grade. Fourth grade, you learn things you didn't know in third grade. It's this progressive sanctification. No, friends. Look at this. It says it's through his body on the cross. Is it through our excessive cleansing of our soul through repentance that we become more sanctified? No, that's not it. Well, does sanctification come when we clean up our performances? Like my mother used to say, clean up your act, right? No, that's not it either. Perhaps sanctification comes through obedience. Now that's what it is. Now if I will just walk like a tin soldier and I'll just obey every little thing, that's where sanctification comes from. No, sir. No, ma'am. Sanctification comes as a gift through Jesus Christ. Look at the next scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. In other words, God's saying, that is not my heart. I've set this up for you, your plan for this under the old covenant, but this is not my heart. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the first what? The first covenant, the old covenant. He sets aside the first to establish the second. How many of you know when you establish something, you got to pour footings? You can't just lay it on the ground. It's not established on the ground. It has to be buried. Jesus was buried, friends, he established, this says, the second, or the new covenant is what he's talking about there. And he says, and by that will, my will to do away with the first covenant, because I wasn't pleased with the sacrifices and offerings, they didn't satisfy me. And by that will, what will? That Jesus had come to do the Father's will. And he said, by that will, we have been sanctified, look at these words, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Come on. So easy, isn't it? Once for all. We've been sanctified once for all. It's not progressive. Can your behavior? change over time. Yes. And we would expect to see that really as a Christian believer believer, matures in their faith. Yes. As the barnacles of guilt, shame, fear, condemnation fall off of you. Yes, of course your behavior is going to change, but it is not your behavior that sanctifies you. The scriptures say right there, it was the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And then he says what Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 said, once for all. I love those words. (laughs) Friends, believers are as clean and perfect as they will ever be. We have been sealed in purity and perfection until the day of redemption. These liberating truths are intricately working in our lives, even when our own hands are missing. They're still at work, kind of like the clock. You see, it was God who made man. Man didn't help make man. And how did God make man? Did he summon the wind to blow a big dirt pile together and do all the work for him? No, friends. The scriptures tell us that the Father did it. He did it. He formed man from the dust of the ground. We see this truth in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and then Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Friends, daddy rolled up his sleeves when he formed man. Adam was made by daddy's hands. Daddy did this. Daddy had a vested interest. He could have just spoke man into being. He could have had an angel on duty to do it. But no, the father did it. The scriptures tell us that God formed man. Adam was made By daddy's hands. And then daddy breathed into the nostrils of lifeless Adam, and Adam became a living soul created in the image and the likeness of his father. And as he stood there before his father, he was as pure as the driven snow. He was perfect. There were no blemishes, no flaws, no cracks on Adam, no wrinkles perfect. That is until spatial disorientation ran its course at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, it was in front of that tree that Adam trusted in his own eyes and in his own senses rather than in the navigational system of his father's words. When the father walked him into the garden and said, Son, I want you to take a look at these two trees. Do you see these trees, son? That one right there is called the tree of life. That one's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, Son, the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. I can't get inside Adam's head to figure out what he must have been thinking. But he was trusting in something different than the father's words. The father was very plain. Adam was born with perfect IQ. He couldn't go back and say, I didn't understand what you meant when he said that. He totally understood what he meant. He didn't understand the consequences, but he understood what God said. After Adam had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, (laughs) oh boy, he experienced G-forces like he had never known. He was pinned against that tree. And for the first time ever, and this is the part that breaks my heart, but for the first time ever, Adam was unable to accurately determine his position. Therefore, he was afraid. What was his response? He thought, I'm upside down! I'm going to crash! I'm in a dense fog and a thick cloud. I'm in a concentration camp of condemnation. So what did Adam do? He sewed together fig leaves to cover himself. This speaks of self-righteousness that I cover me. No, God covers us, friends. He did the same thing for his wife Eve. And then they ran and hid from the Lord God in the garden. You say, Pastor Mark, shouldn't we be equally afraid when we disobey God? Shouldn't we go into hiding in our prayer closet? Shouldn't we cover ourselves with more church, more good works, more giving, more self-control? No, friends, see, this is why believers stay stuck. All of these activities are fine, but none of them take away guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. Only faith in the blood of Jesus' finished work, removes the parasites that are attached to our souls. These activities quite often lead believers into an obsessive compulsive disorder, a disorder that bombards our minds with behavior modification. It bursts the pressure to perform in us and an obsession with shake and bake perfection. You know, again, the kind of perfection that you help with. Okay, Pastor Mark, I got it. I got it. You painted the picture for me. Then what is it that we do when we disobey God? Because sure enough, it's going to happen probably yet this afternoon. Somewhere in my journey, I'm going to disobey my father. What do we do? What do we do after an episode of spatial disorientation? What do we do when we get our minds bombarded with obsessive compulsive thoughts? What do we do when we lose our faith? What do we do when we lose our hope, our way, our mind and our spiritual equilibrium? What do we do when we can't accurately determine our position? What do we do when we go through a season where we haven't heard daddy's heart? And we haven't felt Daddy's gentle touch, the touch, the gentle touch of Daddy's hands. Well, that's a lot of questions. I'm glad you thought of them. But there is one answer that fits them all. We remind ourselves that we're still holy, we're still good, we're still righteous, and we are still perfect. We remind ourselves that not a single whatsoever or whosoever will be able to snatch us out of Daddy's hands. We put ourselves in remembrance of Daddy's provision of grace through the one man, Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, my closing scriptures, but the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of the one man that is adam how much more did god's grace we're talking about the undiluted gospel of grace here friends how much more did god's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man jesus christ overflow to the many nor can the gift of god be compared with the result of one man's sin The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Remember, when Adam failed at the tree, that was that one sin, and it brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses. You sinned all your life, and God said, I forgive you in a moment. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Justification is the fancy word that means declared righteous, declared innocent. Friends, if there were a verse that treats spatial disorientation, it's that one right there. For if by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. One act by Christ declared us innocent forever, for life, and for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many (laughs) will be made righteous. Isn't that plain? Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. There is no expiration date on grace. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work has always been the heart of the Father This grace serves as a medic for the soul, lifting believers from the ocean floor of shipwrecked faith and hope, and healing wounded minds and emotions that have been scattered by the hurricane-force winds of mixture doctrine. Friends, various religions and denominations and persuasions and doctrine have taken captive many souls. They are upside down in their understanding of the gospel, and they don't even know it. They are unable to accurately determine their position, feeling saved one moment and lost the next. What is taught by many as truth is actually no more than spatial disorientation. It is a sustained bank that causes its passengers to lose awareness that they are actually moving further away from the liberties that will set them free. Whether we feel God's presence or not, we must be willing to follow the flight instruments of the new covenant. The flight instruments of the new covenant are the Holy Spirit and all the promises of God. Salvation is offered to all. All what? All who, you ask? All the whatsoevers, all the whosoevers. Many believers have spent their entire lives living in a dense fog of guilt. They've spent their lives living in a thick cloud of shame. They've spent their entire lives living in a concentration camp of condemnation. They have lived there so long that they are physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted by the G-forces of repeated failure and disappointment. Here are the words, once again, of Jesus Christ. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Hold my daddy's hands. Walk with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You say, Pastor Mark, I feel useless at times. I feel like a clock without hands. Friends, the inner workings of a clock are not affected by our missing hands. Neither is our salvation held together by our own hands. Our salvation is held together by Daddy's hands the hands that were perforated when nailed to the cross. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Friends, when they nailed Jesus' hands to the cross, they also nailed Daddy's hands. I'm talking about the hands that reach out to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl with the salvation that cannot be forfeited or lost. I'm talking about the hands that never let go of their kids. Whose hands are these? Do you see the nail scars? They're daddy's hands. Father, I wanna thank you so much. As I look back across the journey that I have been on and I've taken the listeners on over these past four and a half months. And all I can say is thank you. Thank you, thank you a million times over, thank you. There are people, Daddy, that feel as useless as a clock without hands, but help them to see, help them to understand, help them to come into the revelation that has never been about our hands but it's always been about your hands. Daddy, the scriptures tell us to let every word that comes out of our mouth be full of grace, seasoned with salt so that we might be able to give an answer to those who are in need. And so thank you, Father, that the true gospel of grace is a finished work. Nothing can be added to it to make it better. It is a perfect gospel. Jesus from the cross said, it is finished. And then what did he say? He looked up to heaven one last time and he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. How did he know? How did he know about your hands, daddy? Because he was there from the beginning. He was there when the words were spoken, let us make man and let us make man in our image. Father, thank you so much that you never let go of our grip. You've given us eternal life, the scriptures say, and nothing can snatch us from daddy's hand.